My name is Dr. Lisa Coplett, the Associate Dean for Faculty Development at the Frank H. Netter, MD, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I am honored to bring you QU Netter, The First Decade, a series of podcasts to serve as an oral history of the first 10 years of the School of Medicine as we celebrate our 10th anniversary. This first podcast chronicles the genesis of the school and the years leading up to the matriculation of the first class. The second podcast starts with the arrival of the first medical school class in 2013 and spans their four-year tenure at QU Netter. And the third begins after the first class graduates and brings us to the present day. In these first three episodes, I've interviewed 35 faculty, staff, and students who will be generously sharing their memories. This oral history of the school is not a list of dates, but a story of the vision for a new medical school and its early years of development told through the experiences and memories of the people that made it happen. If you are familiar with the school, you know that there are many more people I could have interviewed. With great respect for every person who contributed to the building of QU Netter, we strove to represent each of the different segments of the school and parts of the curriculum with the amazing people who will be sharing their stories. The QU Netter School of Medicine has matriculated 10 classes of students to date. And yet, as you will hear, the school began several years ago with a vision for adding a medical school to a rapidly growing Quinnipiac University. I'm John Leahy. I'm the president of Quinnipiac University from March of 1987 to June 30th of 2018, 31 years and uh, at three months. And I'm currently, uh, since I, re- I retired, I'm currently a professor of philosophy at Quinnipiac. And I had obviously a lot to do with uh, the very beginnings of establishing a school of medicine at Quinnipiac University. Well, the, the vision I had, uh, really going back to 1987, Quinnipiac then was 1,900 students, all undergraduates. It was a small local little college uh, in Hamden, Connecticut, not much known outside of Connecticut. And my vision coming to Quinnipiac as president was to transform this small local little college into a major national university. And to do that, um, particularly in the academic area, we needed to expand from what was then just three schools um, to ultimately, uh, by the time I retired, we had nine schools and colleges. So during that, my tenure there, we added new schools in, in education, school of nursing, school of journalism, we added school of engineering, um, and then ultimately we acquired a business, uh, a law school from University of Bridgeport, and then really, in many ways, the crowning completion of Quinnipiac's transformation from a small little college to a, a nationally recognized university was the um, beginning in the development of the Netter School of Medicine. Now, too many people are given an opportunity to truly transform, as I said, a small little college uh, in Connecticut into a major uh, national university. I looked at what all the, the top 100 or 150 universities in America had as part of their mission. And they all had, in particular, a medical school and law school. You think of it, 3,500 colleges and universities, only 100 
colleges and universities have a medical school and a law school. And when you add engineering to it, it drops down to about 75. I looked at what those institutions had. So it wasn't that I came up with the idea of developing a medical school from scratch on our own just to fill out Quinnipiac's mission. I mean, that may have happened eventually. But as it turned out, a phone call from John Connolly and a chance to just look at New York Medical College and learn more about what it takes to develop a medical school. That was really the thing that began my thinking and the eventual decision and recommendation to the board that we indeed start a medical school on our own, build it on the North Haven campus where we had plenty of land, and the rest is history. What was the board of trustees' reaction to your idea of adding a school of medicine? Well, they ultimately approved it uh, in January 2010. But when I proposed the idea, they were, as you may recall, uh, 2008, 2009 was uh, is referred to as the Great Recession. It was a great financial meltdown in this country and, and throughout the world, really. And we were in the midst of expanding the York Hill campus and building a new athletic facility and dormitories and a Rocky Top Student Center on that campus. So we had a lot on our plate. Their concerns mostly were finances. I think uh, they were readily convinced that at that stage, a medical school, which would have been our ninth school, fit into our mission. Now, we had at that point a very well-known school of health sciences, a very well-known school of nursing. We had added physician assistant programs, uh, anesthesiology assistant program, radiology assistant program, pathology assistant, nurse practitioner, nurse anesthetist program. So we had literally at that point, as I used to say back then, just about every healthcare professional, we were already educating them with the exception of medical doctors. So as I proposed it to the board back in 2008-9 time period, they were very comfortable, I think, that a medical school would fit into our overall mission and be a great complement to our School of Health Sciences and our School of Nursing. In January 2010, after Quinnipiac University's Board of Trustees approved the creation of a School of Medicine, QU publicly announced its plan to build a new medical school to be located on the North Haven campus within the recently acquired former site of the corporate headquarters of Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. In September 2010, Dr. Bruce Keppen was named founding dean and assumed this position on November 1st. My name is Dr. Bruce Keppen, and I was the founding dean of the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I am now happily retired and living in Naples, Florida. Bruce, what is something that you remember about those early days? What really uh, sticks in my mind is how much fun it was. Uh, you know, I was in academic medicine my entire career, but the time that I spent at uh, Quinnipiac building the medical school was the most fun I ever, ever had. And uh, it was a lot of work, but it was so enjoyable. Even when we had to face uh, adversity or, or problems arose, it was still a lot of fun. And I am so grateful that I got that opportunity. Tell me the story about how the school got its name. Oh, that, that's a very interesting story. In 
I had been uh, on the job only about a month or so, and I went to my first board of uh, trustees meeting down in New York City. It was right before the holidays, and as I learned, it was tradition that at that uh, board meeting, uh, when it was over, they had a had a party, a Christmas party, if you will. And we were uh, having cocktails before dinner, and John Leahy came up to me and asked me if I had ever heard of uh, Frank Netter. And I told him uh, that, of course, uh, I knew Frank Netter because I had used his uh, books that he had uh, uh, developed over the years to learn anatomy. And he said, well, keep this confidential, but uh, we're going to be naming the school after Frank Netter. And my response was, how is that going to happen? And that's when he told me that um, Edward and Barbara Netter, Edward uh, was Frank's cousin, uh, were going to give a gift that would result in the naming of the school after his cousin, Frank Netter. And when it was announced by the university uh, a few weeks later, I got literally emails from around the world saying, how the heck did you get to name your school after Frank Netter? What other memories come to mind when you think about the early development of the school? You know, when I think back at uh, all we did at that time, the one thing that really uh, sticks in my mind was when we moved out of our temporary space in the School of Health Sciences into what is now uh, the the School of Law. Uh, Those were the administrative offices of uh, Anthem. And everyone was in that space. And this was when we were preparing for preliminary accreditation. And it didn't matter what your job was, uh, you know, everyone was pulling in the same direction. The goal was we need to get this school accredited. uh, And if we can't do that, then we're in big trouble. And just the amount of work everyone put into it, it was it was amazing. We were all in the space. You could walk down the hallway and, and see everyone. And those were the times when they were building the, the, the school and we would have our monthly hard hat walks through the construction site and see the progress that was being made. And to me, that was like a family working together all for a common purpose. And um, I've never had that in any other experience in my career. And to me, that was the best times. Do you remember the actual submission to the LCME? I mean, everything was paper then, right? Yeah. Yep. In fact, um, I kept a journal during the time, the whole time that I was... uh, was at uh, Quinnipiac, and I'll share with you some of the uh, excerpts from that uh, at the time we were preparing. So we're going to go back to the week of uh, March 5th of 2012, and uh, I wrote in the journal, uh, the deadline for submitting our accreditation database is rapidly approaching and anxiety levels are starting to rise. Despite this anxiety, I feel very good at where everything stands. We will have a very strong application, and I look forward to the LCME authorizing our July site visit. So that was back in in March 
March 5th. Then uh, later in the month, so this is the week of March 26, I, I wrote, uh, this week we essentially stopped writing the database in self-study documents. Next week we should be able to get all of the copies made and collated and shipped to the LCME the following week. It has been a tremendous amount of work for everyone and I am extremely proud of the end result. I believe we have a very strong and credible application. I cannot conceive of a scenario in which we would not obtain preliminary accreditation as planned. And then finally, this is now the week of April 2nd, I wrote, the LCME self-study and database were finalized, printed, and collated. The finished product is slightly over six inches thick and weighs over 10 pounds. I am very proud of the work everyone did to prepare the documents. It is a high quality application, which I believe will be well received by the LCME. And I remember Dave Gillen taking a picture of me holding the completed packet of, of documents and uh, he entitled it, uh, The Proud Father. As we just heard, 2011 was a year of active development for QU Netter. One of the most pivotal moments in the school's early development was the naming of the school. In September 2011, Mr. and Mrs. Edward and Barbara Netter provided the institution with a generous gift to name the school the Frank H. Netter, MD School of Medicine in honor of Edward Netter's cousin and renowned medical illustrator, Dr. Frank Netter. The iconic name of Dr. Netter put the School of Medicine on the map, bringing much attention to the new medical school in Connecticut. Throughout 2010 and 2011, the senior leadership team was hired and started in December 2010 when David Gillen was hired as the Senior Associate Dean for Administration and Finance, and Dr. Anthony Ardolino was hired as the Senior Associate Dean for Academic and Student Affairs. In April 2011, Dr. Stephen Weichel joined the existing three-person team. I'm Dr. Stephen Weichel. I was Senior Associate Dean for Research at the beginning and then for scholarship, and I also was chair of the Department of Medical Sciences. So I had heard from a colleague that Bruce was appointed dean at Netter, and I sent him an email. I, at the time, was at the University of Texas Medical Branch's professor of pathology, and I was senior scientist in biodefense and emerging infectious diseases. And then I sent Bruce an email and said, congratulations, you're going to have fun. And, and about 10 minutes later, I received an email back. It said, how would you like to come back to Connecticut and start a medical school? And I thought at the age of 65, that would be a really interesting challenge and basically would be a lifelong legacy. And this was a real opportunity for something that we, we would develop that would live well beyond our lifetime and have a lasting impact. And I must say, it was a congenial group to work with. Bruce was very good at giving us the freedom to pursue the things and develop it. And I must say, the assignment of having a faculty on site within 18 months uh, was a really great challenge. But it was also a real opportunity to 
put into place some ideas to develop ways of attracting people. And I think the point we don't ever want to forget is that we had a very, very different mandate in terms of what we were doing in developing a medical school faculty. And I had the freedom to be able to develop uh, screening processes that would help us to find the people that we needed. Uh, And the four of us at that point worked very closely together to do this. And as more people came on board, they were engaged. And we had the broad support and cooperation of our colleagues and other departments. It was very important for me in the process of doing this to actually work across the campus. I was also faced with the fact that, let's say we had, I think we brought in 28 individuals. We needed to be able to have a breadth in terms of competencies, but we also needed to have an overlapping capabilities Mm -hmm. so that if something happened that one individual was not going to be in a position to be able to teach or to cover an area, we'd have someone else to cover. Stephen, tell me about the Bobcat Den. Um, as it was lovingly called by some, where the faculty developed the curriculum together, that first iteration of it. That was truly a work in progress because what we did with that is it started out just a small cadre and as more individuals were hired and arrived on site, it expanded. But basically we would have multiple iterations of what we thought would be effective in the curriculum, particularly working out that first year curriculum. And there were some initial differences among the four senior leadership in terms of the way that curriculum should be structured. But we would actually have these on the wall and how would this relate to what we need to cover for the core elements at the NBME would require for competency in particular disciplines. And I was particularly focused on the idea that we needed to make sure that we covered every one of those and that we could do it in multiple ways. So there, there would be reinforcement in different formats. So we were really quite engaged in getting that put together and trying to see how it would fit with what the students were learning on the clinical skills side. And then in their medical student home outreach experience, their clinical mentors. I think overall we were successful at it. Remember, I often used to say that we had to function as pluripotent educators. Right. And then as more and more people were hired, we began to differentiate slowly once we were able to. Yeah, so you're all in the beginning, you're all... CD34 stem cells, right? (laughs) Exactly. So we all had to make that stretch. And so what's an example of something you did and maybe even that you enjoyed where you thought, I never thought I would be doing this? Well, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to be part of starting a new medical school. That was probably the the biggest stretch because I had had success at what I did educationally and my research program had been successful at had extramural funding from 1979 to 2011. But the opportunity to develop a medical school and to actually be involved in developing a lot of the educational components, some of the small group exercises, and also being engaged far more than I had been previously at 
the Yukon Medical School or Texas with the actual accreditation process. I mean, that's an area where you really, it's critical in terms of stretching oneself and developing all of the various elements that were needed to go forward, let's say with faculty governance, things such as that, and making sure that you're doing things that that meet the needs of all the individuals involved. That was stretching. Mm -hmm. And you have all these little building blocks, but ultimately you could create something that has form, substance, and watching, (laughs) yes, recognizable, and watching the individuals grow who are doing this, bringing their expertise, but confidence and developing confidence in what in essence was a new culture, a new experience. And I think that was, those are some of the best moments in terms of seeing that happen. And then when the students arrived, you know, it all came together. Early in 2011, even before the School of Medicine was named, Dr. Edward O'Connor, Dean of the School of Health Sciences, Dr. Anthony Artelino, the Senior Associate Dean for Academic and Student Affairs, and Dean Keppen began meeting with local healthcare facilities to identify clinical partners for future student placements and to identify a primary clinical partner. In May 2011, the first faculty member was hired, Dr. Thomas Murray, who later became the course director for the Scholarly Reflection and Concentration Capstone course. And by September, St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport, Connecticut became the School of Medicine's primary clinical partner, and their department chairs became the chairs of the school's academic clinical departments. The collaboration and collegiality of the School of Health Sciences and School of Nursing was an essential step in developing new physical spaces, identifying clinical partners, and recruiting faculty. I'm Dr. Edward O'Connor, currently serve as the provost at Kansas City University in Kansas City, Missouri. And at the time, I served as the Dean of Health Sciences during the formation of the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Betsy Smith. I, at the time, was the Associate Dean of the School of Health Sciences at Quinnipiac. My role now is as the Senior Associate Dean. I have oversight of all the academic programming, curriculum, accreditation, and progression and retention. So Betsy and Ed, you were both the senior leaders in the School of Health Sciences when the very first people were hired at the med school, including me. And I was so struck at just how welcoming you and your whole team were. You all literally gave up a large part of your office space for us. And that was pretty incredible. And to me, really epitomized the environment at Quinnipiac. So, of course, I want to thank you for that again. And just find out how did you feel about a medical school coming to Quinnipiac? Sure. I I would say that we were both apprehensive and excited to have you in our office it was it was an opportunity for us to get to know you all. And when I think back at those times, I think had you not come into into quote our office space, we never would have gotten to know you. We never would have had an appreciation of what you were bringing to Quinnipiac at the time. And those days were fun. And I think we Ed and I especially were open to this 
this notion that you were going to come and what it would be like, and then the story evolves from that point on. Well, it really was an exciting time, right? The opportunity to build a new medical school, which I said, there weren't a lot of new ones at that time, from the ground up was exciting, and how to build this together, right, and share information and learn from each other. It was an exciting time. I agree with um, Dr. Smith. The, The ability to have us all in that same suite in the beginning was critical, right, to the partnerships um, that were developing in the beginning. And um, you folks were great, and, and we were trying to uh, be welcoming as well. But I will say one piece. I think it was intentional at the time because of that, right? There was space. We could have settled somewhere else. There was an intentionality to that because we were so focused on building interprofessional education piece around that with nursing, with the School of Health Sciences, and then with the future School of Medicine. And we were lucky to get great people to to accomplish it. That was the key. I think, too, that too often we don't put enough credit to the informal conversations and chit-chats that go on in offices. And certainly we appreciate that now since COVID. I, I think it was that camaraderie that gets established when you're all in the same office and you're you're able to say hello and have a five minute or a two minute conversation that forms the relationship it doesn't form the relationship when you're on a zoom platform or you're in a formal meeting because those don't lend themselves to really getting to know one another and what it's like what do you think has been a success of interprofessional education at quinnipiac i think we've had many successes One being the facilities that we have been able, or Quinnipiac has been able to create. SPAC, we never would have had SPAC had you not been established as a medical school. We have greater simulation facilities. We have people in places that we never would have, positions that would never have come to fruition. So I think while we still have some challenges about utilization of all those spaces, they are there and they provide an infrastructure that is quite frankly state of the art it's wonderful i think we've had successes with students from the school of medicine and some of their selective courses in the school of health sciences as well as across the university which is wonderful one more thing about successful things that have occurred. I was just looking at a one-page sheet for interprofessional education, and I believe there have been not hundreds, but more than thousands of students that have participated in IPE events in the past years. And that, that truly is a success. And it may not be all medical students or health science, but it's across the university now. And I think, I think that's truly an accomplishment. What are some memories that stand out to you during the time period when the medical school was first starting? We were building a non-traditional medical school in the sense that it wasn't linked to a large academic medical center that was typically driven by clinical and, and research revenue. It was critical to find the right leadership from the beginning to set the strategy and the tone of the school, and then building the faculty and staff necessary to build and deliver a curriculum to bring in the first class. So in the early stages, right, we were focused on a teaching medical school, right, with an opportunity for innovative curriculum. And as I said, interprofessional educational opportunities 
with our schools of health sciences and nursing and other programs. The expansion of research and clinical would come later. So from the very beginning, our interviewing process was non-traditional. Usually when you're interviewing for an academic position, you talk about your research or for a clinician or clinical practice or something. But we were talking about building a teaching focus, right? And so we asked faculty that were interviewing at the time to give a lecture, a teaching lecture, and sometimes not linked to their research. Yeah, I mean, that first core group early on, just the conversations. And as we were meeting with clinical partners, going to, to hospitals to try to define a clinical partner, how exciting that was and how everyone around us was excited that we were doing this. And basically, we, we visited every hospital in Connecticut over the time. And many of the hospitals were already taking our students from other programs, so they knew who we were. But they were excited about what we were building. It's just fun telling a good story when you have a good story. And building that medical school is a great story, easy to tell and a lot of fun. And I'm just grateful to be in the beginning there and be just a little tiny little part of it. I take a lot of pride in that, that we helped build that school. And every physician that graduates, we, we all had a little part of that. And then they're going to go out and treat probably tens of thousands of patients and clients over their time, right? We could feel good about that. And that's one of the joys of being in, in higher education. By the fall of 2011, the first two years of the curriculum was developed and included three longitudinal courses that remain the core of our curriculum. Foundations of Medicine, a scholarly reflection and concentration capstone course, and the Clinical Arts and Sciences course. Dr. Todd Cassis was the first course director of the Clinical Arts and Sciences course. My name is Dr. Todd Cassis. I'm an internist uh, by background. I practice hospital medicine, and I'm currently the Associate Dean for Medical Education at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Prior to this position, I was at Quinnipiac and served as the inaugural director of the Clinical Arts and Sciences course, having joined Netter, I believe, in September 2011, and then full-time in January 2012. In that role, I had the opportunity to develop the Introduction to Clinical Medicine course. It also included content in ethics and health system science and health equity, and also work with the clerkship directors who were just getting started at that time to help build their, their clerkships and their model for, for education. I want to reminisce on one part of our, our journey together, which was, I think I remember one of the first meetings that you and I were, were there together in person for, and it was a discussion about how we were going to do grading at the school and whether we should be letter graded or pass fail. And in the end, I think the discussion was somewhat academic. I think we actually had already submitted some aspects of our, our plan prior to that discussion. But it was a really important discussion, I think, for so many of us to really engage in what matters to us educationally, what are we trying to do, what's the mission of the school, and how does grading actually influence it? And I remember just uh, leaving that, that discussion and feeling like, wow, I made the right decision to come here because I really had a chance to listen to others and, and hear and learn, but also share my opinion and, and be uh, listened to and respected even though I was relatively uh, junior at that time in my tr in my career trajectory. When you asked about skill set, I mean, I, I would agree that we really had to do it all and, and learn on the fly. I remember having meetings about affiliation agreements and, you know, how we might compensate uh, people for different types of activities. 
and probably at that point had no business having some of those discussions, but had to and did and learned a lot in that process. I think another aspect was recruitment. We, as for part of our, our MESH program, medical student home program, we had to recruit roughly 60 to 100 primary care providers in the community within a few short months. And that process of learning how to recruit, how to do it both expeditiously and effectively, uh, making sure that we were recruiting the right people to do this work who are excited about it while also getting them some sense of what they were signing up for which hadn't even been put on paper yet. That was exciting. And I think the skill set was, how do you iterate quickly? How do you learn in the moment? And how do you make changes when you need to? What stands out for you in the early development phase? I think this is really one of the things that sets Quinnipiac apart and did even from its, its opening was that we would have this really grand area to do clinical skills training and assessment with standardized patients. I had never run a standardized patient center before. I had been involved in simulation prior to that. And even at Yale, they did not have a center. They were they actually used our center for quite some time. So there wasn't an easy way to locally get information. So I remember touring several New York City medical schools centers as well as UConn's center. We had already kind of, as you pointed out, the architects had already laid out the space and had even put in you know fixtures for plumbing and things of that sort. So I was picking up from there. And it turned out that on my first tour of the center, I really wanted to go through it as a student would go through it. And I realized we actually, at that point, there had been a mistake made and that our sinks were actually on the wrong side. So what that meant ostensibly was that when students came into the room to greet the patient, they actually had to walk up by the patient, but then leave the patient and go back to where the sink was on the opposite side of the room. And I remember having a conversation with some of the senior leaders at that time saying, you know, is this something we can fix? Is there anything we can do? And the cost that we, we actually did look into it and the cost was so staggering just for something simple like this. And we actually ended up putting in an alcohol you know, dispenser in a better spot so that it would allow some students to be able to interface with patients in a more seamless manner. But on the flip side, I actually think it was really helpful because for most students, it meant that they had to really address this awkwardness of going up to a patient without shaking hands initially, then greeting them and then moving over, washing their hands while explaining what they were doing and then coming back um, and doing the handshake. And, and that awkwardness, that getting over that awkwardness is so critical to building communication skills and, and being effective in patient care um, activities that I actually think it was a welcome uh, a mistake. But it was very funny when we when we recognized well, funny is not maybe not the right word, but it was interesting when we recognized yeah. it and then realizing that we had to work around it. And I think so many things at at Netter were like that, that um you I would identify something that really, you know, maybe we could have done it a little differently or better, but we had to live with it. And we always found a way to make it positive whenever we could. And this was one of those examples. What was it like to start an entire clinical skills course and early clinical experience for a medical school from nothing? Daunting is the word that, that comes to mind. I remember, actually, I, I had to have um, hip surgery on both hips in the summer prior to, actually April prior to first class starting. And so, um, and I had planned for this, that I would be at home recovering from those surgery and would be really just writing a lot of curriculum. And that was the easy part, it turned out. The curriculum kind of came quickly and naturally. There were lots of people I could reach out to you know, nationally 
who are willing to share, and we could we could uh, really iterate um, around what that would that building process. But it was the part where you and I came together around faculty development that was so challenging. How do you ensure in a model that we were really trying to to exemplify of small group education? How do you create consistency and high standards across multiple small groups to ensure that students were really learning these critically important clinical skills, practicing them, getting feedback, and then being assessed? That part was was a challenge because we had about, I think in the first year with only one class, about 18 um, small group facilitators. And that number almost doubled the following year when we had a second year class. On top of that, getting the the mesh preceptors, as I mentioned, the first year was just over 60. And then the second year, we had about 160. And really just getting them to understand what it was we were trying to accomplish, what role we hoped that they would play, while also hearing from them, what could they do? What did they want to do? What was the experience like? And how could we really grow based on that? And figuring out good ways to communicate, figuring out how to do faculty development in a meaningful way for these individuals. That was the part I underestimated and I think really enabled us to do a lot more than, than I expected because we had such a great group of people that all wanted the same thing. They wanted students to be the kinds of doctors that we all really hope and, and, and really aim for. So that, that was a really uh, unique experience. And I think, again, the, the, the process of iterating in a curriculum and not being really weighed down by a prior way of doing it, we, we basically had a, a blank slate. And that enabled us to do some things that I still think are very unique and still make up a, a part of the curriculum even after my time leaving. And I think that that's really what makes the Quinnipiac experience, I think, really outstanding in terms of this clinical skills our students are developing and honing. I have to thank the senior leadership, in particular, Dave Gellin, who is our initial senior associate dean for administration and, and finance. And so in his role, he recognized right away, I wanted to go big. Uh, I really wanted to take all these ideas about what was happening with education at that time, how we thought about learners developing clinical reasoning and applying these clinical skills, what was necessary to do that, and the fact that it was not cheap to do any of those things if we wanted to do them well. And the best part about it was, one, Dave never said no to me and all the time, and I went with a lot of requests, but he never said no. And that's because we really were able to justify every expense. Why are we doing it? What's it going to lead to? Why does it matter? And he could see that vision. And, and I think he really believed in it. And I don't know how he was able to do it, but he really enabled us to build a, a program financially that few places have been able to do. And so I, I do want to acknowledge him as someone who really made the school what it is. And many people may not know him, both because he's someone who, who is behind the scenes often, but also because he, he left after a year or two after the school's founding. But this is someone who really, I think, sponsored the school in ways that without his ability to be creative with the finances and think long term, I don't think we would be where we are. We really have a gem in, in the program, and it's, again, as much due to the financial resources that were put into it, the incredible personnel that drove it, including the administrators and the standardized patients who were partners throughout the entire process. This is It's really amazing to see how that center and how that center built into the curriculum and how so many different people worked together to make, uh, make this happen.
February 2012, having outgrown the space in Building 1, the School of Medicine faculty and staff relocated to the old Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield offices on the first floor of what was called Building 3, which is the current administrative suite of the School of Law. Construction of the School of Medicine space began in early 2012 in what was Building 2. The QU Board of Trustees approved the contract for constructing the School of Medicine at an estimated cost of $70 million. As you heard from founding Dean Dr. Bruce Keppen, the faculty and staff did walkthroughs with hard hats frequently to see the new space, and we had many decisions to make from optimizing classrooms for learning to small details about aesthetics. As the structure for the medical school was built, so was the curriculum, the accreditation materials that needed to be submitted and approved, and the faculty and staff. My name is Mary Zafino, and I am the clinical coordinator associate in the School of Nursing. And when I worked at Netter, I was the executive assistant to the dean. You were the first assistant to the first dean for the medical school before it even opened. I think you more than anybody had the most eclectic set of responsibilities. And there were times when I thought, and actually I think everybody thought that you did everything. Everybody went to you for everything. What was the most exciting part of getting the school launched? I think for me, um, just having, we all had a sense of doing something great. You know, it was like we all were the first recruiting the faculty and building the school and sitting in on meetings, like designing how the school was going to look, where the morgue was going to go and, you know, how the offices were going to get laid out, talking about signage with the architects. Just everybody felt like we were part of something great and it was going to be historical and just huge for the university. You know, I had been at the university for 10 years at that point. And so I really felt like I could contribute because I knew Bruce was new to the school. People who were bringing in were new. We recruited 45 faculty and staff by the time I left. Wow. And it was just the most collaborative, rewarding position of my career so far. It really was. It was such an exciting time. You described that so well. That's exactly how I describe it to other people. I mean, said we all did everything. We all worked so far outside the scope of our roles because we had to, but it was also so exciting to do that. And we learned along the way, you know, we wouldn't just randomly make decisions. We would go learn about what we needed to do and then, you know, make these decisions. It did, you know, sometimes I know I wonder, and I know a lot of people do, because I've talked to a lot of colleagues about this. You wonder, am I making a difference? Am I contributing something important to the world? And I think we did feel, we felt that way. Totally. And I remember just like having celebrations, like after the first LCME visit, I remember Bruce and I were in the conference room till like seven o'clock at night, putting all the booklets together. And we were so stressed out and worried that we might not get the pass or get the approval. Um, this was, I think, in the fall before we yep, were it was. Yeah, mm -hmm. just so many things. And we celebrated like the little things. We always were having wine and cheese and Yes. Yay, we did it. We finalized the faculty handbook. Or, That's right. You all know, those little all those little things. Yeah, and it just, we felt like we were building something great. And we just all really wanted it to succeed. What were some of the biggest challenges in the early years from that very special perspective that you got to have? 
I think just getting the faculty in and building a good staff and team to lead the school. I think that was so important. And I think Stephen Weichel and Bruce and Dave Gillen, they all did a good job of finding the right people. I just remember driving back and forth to the train station and booking hotel rooms. And, you know, it was just there was a lot of recruiting and a lot of things going on. And it was so important to them to get the right people. Um, I think we ended up with a good crew. And, you know, I think mission accomplished very successfully. Yep. Well, we ended up with a great crew. What's something that you remember about those startup years that other people might be surprised to learn? I just remember working so, so hard and coming home from work and just like collapsing on my bed. I mean, I wish I could say something more interesting, but I just remember coming home and going up into my bedroom and just like laying down and telling my husband, just don't talk to me, like, (laughs) leave me alone. Because like, I just felt like there was people were at me constantly all day long. It was a lot. I mean, it was probably the hardest I ever worked. You know, but I loved it because I felt like I was doing something amazing. And I didn't know anything about a med school or what it takes to educate future physicians. And Bruce was just so amazing as a leader and as a a boss. I mean, I just thought he was wonderful. And as smart as he was, he was very humble and kind and very hands-off. And he relied on me to do what had to get done. Like there was no like, here's what you need to do to figure out a way to do it. I really miss working with him, that's for sure. Who made you laugh the most? Well, Bruce was pretty funny, but Stephen Weichel, to me, was hilarious. I sat right outside his office when we were in the School of Health Sciences Dean Suite before we even had a a building of our own. And he would just come out with these one-liners, and I'd be on the floor. You know, we'd be so intensely, like, working on... Um, appointment letters or, you know, something, big project. And he would just yell something out of his office. He, he would have me in stitches, you know. And I don't. I think a lot of people didn't really see that side of him. He was a very tall and intimidating, if you saw him, you know, with his... Yeah, figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was very... Yeah. You could tell he was a scientist just by the way he carried himself with his pocket protector and his little bow tie. But boy, he... He had a very silly sense of humor, which I appreciated. That is so great. We did laugh a lot. Yeah. I feel like all the time. One of the three core courses in the first two years of the curriculum is the Scholarly Reflection and Concentration Capstone course that we shortened to SRCC. In this course, students select one of several concentrations from the more traditional basic translational and clinical research concentration called BTCR to concentrations like medical humanities. Another element of the course is the development of a student-led faculty mentored scholarly capstone project that is related to the student's concentration. One important part of developing the SRCC course was identifying potential mentors for the student projects and selecting faculty leaders of the concentrations called concentration coordinators. My name's Angela Manning, and I'm a professor in the School of Business. I also have the honor and privilege of being a professor in the School of Medicine. 
and I am also the co-coordinator of the healthcare management and organizational leadership course in the SRCC and have been since the inception of Netter. Angela, tell me about what it means to be a concentration coordinator. Yes. So there are nine, I believe, concentrations at the time. And what it allows is students to pick a particular topic area. So the concentrations expand topics such as global health, health humanities, health education, as you know. And I have the honor and privilege of being the co-coordinator of the health management and organizational leadership concentration, which gives students a deep dive into the business of healthcare because it is a business, and also gives them a look at what the system of healthcare is that they'll be going into. So it gives our students a depreciation and perspective that they wouldn't normally get in terms of what the business of healthcare delivery is, and also what's the system that they're going into broader than the clinical knowledge that they get uh, very well from the clinical faculty at Netter. When did you start working with the medical school and why did you get involved? So I started working with medical school just about the first days of the medical school, you know, really from the beginning of the medical school. And I became aware of it because I was senior faculty teaching healthcare management and the founding chair of the Department of Healthcare Management and Organizational Leadership at the School of Business. But I really got involved and stayed involved because it's a passion and it's a calling. I am the daughter of a nurse and the daughter of a father who succumbed to a medical error. And for me, it's a way of paying it forward and giving it back And really, uh, as I think about it, I'm brought to tears because it really is a special place in my heart to work with the students at Netter and my wonderful colleagues at the School of Medicine. I know it is, too. You give that. You exude your joy of it all the time. What do you think the SRCC course offers to QU students that's special or unique or important? and or important. That's easy. You know, this this SRCC course is something that medical students would normally not get. Um, You know, as I said initially, every one of these wonderful physician leaders that we bring in, usually the first thing that they say to us is, wow, I wish I had this in medical school. So it gives the medical student a perspective beyond the clinical training, the excellent clinical training they're getting, and also gives them some basic research skills, whether they're doing clinical research in the clinical track or they're doing policy case studies, interviews in our track. It gives them that ability to take the clinical knowledge and expand it beyond a narrow focus on on clinical training. So it provides students with a much broader perspective than they would have generally. 
And the other thing it does, it also gives them an opportunity for leadership. Yes. Because they're leading their capstone project, whether it's in humanities or whether it's in clinical bench work, they are truly the PI on, on their particular project. And they're learning how to both manage up Mm-hmm. manage their coordinators, manage their mentors. Um, for us, they're often working on real-world projects that, given budget constraints or change in mentors, sometimes disintegrate. And to us, we've learned over the past 10 years, that is one of the best lessons because that's medicine. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a clinical patient that's crashing. So you know, to learn how to manage it through a project and put it all back together is just an outstanding lesson. So we never get upset when the project crashes. We look to them. Well, we might, but then we go. But then we keep moving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then we, we keep, keep moving. Keep moving because yeah. those are sometimes the best learning yeah, absolutely learning opportunities there there are. Twenty years from now, what would you like people to say was your greatest contribution to the medical school? 20 years from now, I hope people don't remember my name. I hope what they see, you know, I always think of teaching as such an honor and such a privilege that it's like throwing a pebble in the water and it, it just cascades. And I hope what they see is maybe someone who sat in our classroom, someone who heard something that we said and it resonated with them, someone who went off on a line of research because we exposed them to something and created a career. So it really isn't about me. It's about our students and it's about the contribution that they're going to make and the improvements that they're going to make in healthcare. You know, I hope that if we expose them to patient safety, to significant opportunities in that area, that they incorporate that as part of their practice. So 20 years from now, hopefully I will be on a beach somewhere in a bookstore that I've started, and our students will be here, whether it's here at Netter or throughout the United States or internationally. And if we have caused a little bit of a ripple that helps them improve the healthcare system, then that to me would be such a wonderful contribution and the ability to pay it forward. In April 2012, the documents to apply for preliminary accreditation were sent to the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, which you will hear referred to as the LCME throughout this oral history. The LCME is the accrediting body for medical schools in the U.S. and Canada. In July 2012, the LCME survey visit for preliminary accreditation took place where a team from the LCME came to campus to do a site visit, see the physical space, and met with faculty and leadership. While we waited for our school survey visit to be brought to the main LCME committee, we continued planning and development of the curriculum, assessments, identification of clinical partner sites, and the recruitment of faculty. As we've learned, there are three major courses in the first two years of the curriculum, and we've already heard about the Clinical Arts and Sciences course and the Scholarly Reflection and Concentration Capstone course. 
The third course, Foundations of Medicine, is the single integrated basic science course in the first two years. It is broken into organ system-based blocks and requires the largest amount of curricular time for pre-clerkship students. As you might imagine, the majority of the medical sciences faculty, QU Netter's full-time faculty who teach on the North Haven campus, teach in the Foundations of Medicine course. Before the students arrived, they were very busy developing curriculum and ensuring integration within the course and across courses. Hi, I'm Dr. Anthony Payne. I'm an associate professor of medical sciences. I am one of the coordinators for both the year one and year two heart lung kidney blocks. And for the past academic year, I've been the director of the first year of the Foundations of Medicine course. Tony, when did you first start at QU Netter? I was hired in 2012 in the summer, I guess what I would call as part of a second wave of faculty. There was a group of faculty here and administrators that got the school through the first LCME steps. And then I came on with a number of other six or seven other faculty within a span of a couple of months. Yeah. And that's awfully short when you say second wave because 2012 was only one year after we got going. Mm -hmm. So I consider you for sure to be one of our founding faculty. And what was it like to start the big basic science course? The course traditional curricula in traditional schools is usually multiple courses, right? And this was this one massive course. What was it like to start that from the beginning? It was fun. It was interesting. It was frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) It was very rewarding, though. I had been, before being hired here, I had been a lecturer at the University of Florida in a department of anatomy and cell biology. And the curriculum there at that time was very much separate departments doing separate things. I taught histology and anatomy, and I was not allowed near the physiology course. And coming here, where the intent from the beginning was that courses were going to be thematically based or organ system based rather than discipline based and being able to work with people who are anatomists, are cell biologists, are biochemists, are hematologists, pathologists, pediatricians, right? All in the same department, all working together towards a common goal of creating a curriculum and, and being able to see the elements of the curriculum from very different viewpoints, but all working towards a common goal was really, really, really a lot of fun and very interesting. And I, I, I still say that I learned more as a faculty member in that first year of work, helping build that curriculum than I've learned any, any other year, single year of my entire career. I I know for myself, like when I think back to my memories, right, I sort of have these snapshot moments of Mm -hmm. memories throughout life. Are there any sort of snapshot memories that come to mind during that that really early time? The very early time. So I was hired before our building was finished and we worked in was essentially an old office building in cubicles. It was the old Anthem building. The the old Anthem building. Yeah. In sort of 1980s style cubicles. 
And a whole bunch of us, relatively young faculty, were all sort of positioned in a, in a common area. We called it the cubicle farm <laughs> because I would just pop my head up and look over the wall at Victor or Doug or Carolyn or, or whoever and, and ask a question and, and then back down below the wall. And so we were almost like uh, groundhogs sort of popping up <laughs> out of the ground <laughs> to talk to each other. That sort of snapshot comes to mind and from those very early days being able to i mean literally walk around the cubicle wall and that was our so-called conference room <laughs> and you know everybody was there the, the the whole group of faculty was all right there literally under one roof and it was just so unlike anything that i had experienced and it was a really a formative time i get a lot of snapshots from those times what I do remember, though, is that there was a conference room table. It was fairly long, but it was surrounded by the cubicle walls, the type of walls that, that were like pin cushions that you could yes. pin everything on, right? Every week was essentially a standard piece of paper. It just pinned up <laughs> all around the, that entire section. But then each piece of paper started getting cut because we wanted to move things. And so, you know, each piece of paper ended up getting cut into strips for a, for a day, for a couple of hour block or, you know, of time, and then moved around like, like a giant Tetris board <laughs> turned yes. on its side, right? That became a, a very sort of low tech, but really useful way in which people were thinking about topics and where to put them and how to group them and yeah, thematically and and what fits together into what we call a block or, or what other places might call a course. Yeah, it was, it, it was, again, it was very low tech, but it, it works. And we spent a lot of time over there sort of arguing and high-fiving <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, what fit where and why should this go before that? And you can't teach this before you teach that, you know, it, that, that whole process would just went on and on. But it was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. And looking how it, how the FOM course aligned with uh, clinical arts and sciences and how SRCC fit into the whole scheme of things, that was really a lot of fun. Tony, you left QUNetter in 2015 for family reasons, and you came back in 2021. It must have been pretty cool to see the changes in the students, the facilities, the staff, the faculty. Was there anything that surprised you? Coming back was really an interesting process because it's there's that old saying, you can never go home again, right? And so in the one sense, it was like coming home. In another sense, it was different people and the curriculum was different enough that I was I had to pause and say, wait a minute, I don't... I had to learn what has changed in the ensuing years that I'd been gone. The one thing that was the most surprising, and I don't think this was actually unique to Netter, is kind of the effects of the COVID restrictions. And so my memory was one where there was such vibrant interaction between students and faculty in person. There were always students around the offices, right? in the building, physical presence in the building. They're kind of like you could feel it, the spirit of the students around all the time. And then coming back, well, first of all, having gone to other schools where it was not like that, I really missed it. 
And so coming back in 2021, I was, I was really looking forward to that. And yet we were still in the sort of COVID restriction thing and then sort of not seeing that and feeling that physical presence of the students was a, was a big surprise on the, on the negative side. But I, I, I'm really happy because in the, in the two years since returning, there's been a dramatic shift in the other way, right? We're, we're headed back to what feels like sort of pre-COVID and, and, uh, you know, headed back to, uh, what, what feels more like what it was in the, in the early days where, you know, students have essentially, I want to say almost unfettered access to faculty and, and, and they take advantage of that. And it's something that is really a positive part of working here is, is the ability of the students to find us, their willingness to come talk to us, our ability and availability to, to work with them on, on any number of, of projects or to work with them and helping them understand the material. So that was, it was kind of a shock when I got back because I had this expectation, right? And, and then it wasn't there, but, uh, but it's headed back and it's coming back and I'm really happy. What hadn't changed that you were glad hadn't changed? Like, oh, this, this does feel like home. A lot of familiar faces, right? So, so people who were hired basically at the same time I was hired and, and coming back and being able to see them. I'm, I'm happy to see that what was present in the beginning of people from all different backgrounds in their scientific or medical training are still just walking over to each other's offices and saying, Hey, you got a minute then, and, you know, getting to work on, on whatever the, the issue is, whatever the upcoming idea is people freely sharing ideas, right. In one department all towards a common goal. We don't always agree. <laughs> we never always agreed, uh, on, you know, what we think we should be doing, but the the ability to just openly work with a lot of other faculty and you can have ideas and input into multiple different parts of the curriculum. It's not siloed away into a separate department, right? That that's still here. And I'm really happy about that. I think it's great that we don't like that. There isn't always agreement, right? Cause if right. you want discourse and you want fresh ideas and challenging ideas, you know, I think that's wonderful. What was the most fun thing that you've done at Netter or experienced? So a, another great one was, you know, I, and sorry, I'm going back to the early days on this one, but the, the inaugural class did sort of a, a faculty and staff funny awards, superlative awards called them. Yep. Will. And, it, that's one of and, my best memories too, Tony. Yeah. And, and in the early days of the school, we had all this new technology that we were all trying to figure out. And then active learning classrooms, which at the time we called the collaborative classrooms, the the big screens on the wall were set up with uh, a software that allowed them to be touch enabled. And I was determined that I was going to <laughs> figure that out and be able to use it in my teaching. And, and it had snafus regularly. One of the awards, I got two awards that day. One of them was most likely to uh, break the collaborative classrooms <laughs> and then <laughs> because I don't you know I I I show my emotion pretty much I I wear it on my face my sleeve the the second award was uh, most likely to be broken by the collaborative classroom 
And like, you know, as they read the awards out, I like, I knew exactly who this is going to be. This is for me. Right. And so the whole day was just, uh, that, that whole event was, was really funny. We all kind of got to laugh at each other and the students got to laugh at us and poke fun at us. But of course we were able to poke fun at ourselves and recognized it in all these sort of funny awards. There was ample truth. <laughs> So, you know, it was, it, it, that was, that was probably one of the funniest things that we ever did here. That was a great, oh, that was just a wonderful day. It was, it was a great roast. I think we all laughed till we cried that day. Yes, absolutely. In September, 2012, the Advisory Committee on Accreditation of the State Office of Education unanimously approved the School of Medicine's application for the awarding of the MD degree. Then in October 2012, the Connecticut Board of Education licensed the School of Medicine to award the MD degree. The Association of American Medical Colleges accepted the School of Medicine as a member school, and the LCME awarded preliminary accreditation for a class of 60 students, which allowed the School of Medicine to start accepting applications for admission. On October 15th, the American Medical College Application Service opened up applications for QU Netter, and we received over 200 applications in the first 24 hours. And by the end of the first application cycle, we received approximately 2,000 applications for 60 spots. The following month, on-site interviews of applicants began. By March 2013, the faculty and staff moved into the new building space while construction was still being completed. My name is Dr. Anna Layla Williams. I'm professor of medical sciences at Quinnipiac University, Netter. My primary roles are leading the development and execution of the curricular content related to behavioral and social sciences and medical humanities. What is narrative medicine? Let's start with that. So narrative medicine is one of the forms of medical humanities that was started at Columbia University by Dr. Rita Sharon. And the focus is on honoring the stories of medicine. So the stories can originate from the patient, from the family member, from the health professional but it's understanding the potency of the story and being able to use the story so that uh, we can recognize the relationships that are at the heart of medicine and allow the healing power of those relationships to emerge. You have led and championed our narrative medicine element from our uh, first moments. Are there any particular poignant moments or memories as a narrative medicine facilitator that you could share that you think illustrate its impact on our students? Well, I think you know, as a narrative medicine facilitator yourself, that every narrative medicine session is sacrosanct in its own way. It is. For me, the profundity arises when I see students over time and uh, see them become more self-aware and more comfortable expressing their emotions. I would say what's most touching for me in the classroom is 
the depth of kindness that the students show to each other. I couldn't agree more. It's remarkable. I can't put words to it, really. I know I've watched students almost rescue each other from difficult emotional places or or feeling that they're alone in an experience or feeling, but in really profound ways. I agree. So interesting that that, that is sort of what's the most poignant for you too. Have you had students talk to you later in patient care situations and come back and say, this had an impact. I remembered back to my, you know, those yes, kind of things. that's exactly what so, happens. So you want to talk about that? Yeah. So I think beyond what happens in the classroom in the moment is uh, being able to see the effect on, of our narrative medicine discussions on the students as they progress through the program. And just last month, I had uh, the wonderful opportunity to run into a fourth-year student who was on campus. And uh, she came right up to me, gave me a hug, and said, Oh, Dr. Williams, I have thought about you so often when I've been on my clerkships. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where it's been emotionally challenging or I've been at a loss for words with patients or at not knowing how to comfort a family member or even being distressed myself by the magnitude of distress that I'm experiencing and witnessing. The student shared that in those moments, her mind would leap back Mm. to conversations that we had in narrative medicine, um, things that her classmates said things that she was able to extrapolate from the artifacts we looked at, whether it was a poem or an essay or an artistic piece. In all of these instances, the experiences from the narrative medicine classroom continued to affect her and come to her as gifts now two years later. To me, that was a really beautiful example of how in the classroom we're planting seeds and we're certainly planting them in very rich soil and the students are able to have the the seeds grow and be available to them as fruit when they need it the most. What do you feel has been your greatest contribution since coming to QU Netter? I'm still elbow deep in this, so it's hard to have that reflective capacity uh, to know because I'm still working on refining the medical school and educating students. So I don't have the perspective, really, to know what my greatest contribution is. I can say that my what my hope is so my hope is that I've been able to maintain a standard of excellence in everything that I do and that I've kept the ideals of health equity and social justice in the students' minds as they learn medicine. And my aim has been for the students to see themselves as agents of social change 
who can improve the healthcare system. If I was able to do that for even a small percentage of students, I would consider that a great contribution. One of my most poignant memories in working with you was when we developed the first vision, mission, and value statement for the school. I remember exactly the room we were in at Rocky Top. It was a small group of us, and we took that job very seriously. And I was just wondering if you remember that process and what those memories are. Oh, I most certainly do, Lisa. And like you, I remember the intensity and the sense of responsibility that we each brought to the process. And I remember the spirited conversations we had. Uh, Everyone was focused on getting the wording just right because we knew that the vision statement, the mission statement, and the value statement were going to be the foundation for everything that came after that, whether it was recruitment of faculty and staff, whether it was our LCME accreditation, in everything including curriculum development as well. I think we all took great pride in where we finally landed with that. So another memory I have is of uh, developing our uh, diversity statement. And I uh, specifically remember the very first state of the school address that was delivered by Dean Bruce Keppen. His commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion at the School of Medicine was manifest by allowing us to uh, create a wall-sized banner of the diversity statement. And then during the State of the School address, he publicly came down, signed the banner, and then encouraged all of us to come forth and put our names, put our signatures on the banner for a public display in a prominent place in the medical school. So he was saying right up front, this is what Netter is. This is what we value as a community. Are there any memories that feel very palpable, very vivid in your mind? So I have a vivid memory of that first week when the students arrived. So I actually gave the first lecture of day one of medical school. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. It was in collaboration with uh, Dr. David Hill. And we wanted to set the conceptual frame of the biopsychosocial model to be sure that the students understood that their medical education was going to include more than foundational science, but also extend to the humanistic elements of medicine. And uh, remarkably, Dr. Engels, who had who developed the biopsychosocial model, was one of David Hill's professors. So when I learned that, uh, I made sure that he was present to give his personal account of working with Dr. Engels. All of that is to say that by the end of that week, I have a vivid memory of sitting in the auditorium with two of uh, my colleagues 
Tom Murray and Todd Cassis. And we just sat back in our chairs and looked at each other and, you know, part euphoria, part exhaustion, part, holy cow, what just happened? (laughs) And it was just a, a beautiful and tender moment for the three of us as as friends because it what that represented at that time was a culmination of great effort for the two years that had preceded it but uh, little did we know there was so much more great effort to come of course <laughs> that was just week one The startup phase of QU Netter spanned approximately four years in total. And as you have heard, it was an eventful and busy few years filled with building the physical space, building a team of the best possible faculty, staff, leadership, and clinical partners to create the infrastructure, systems, and curriculum needed to fulfill the vision for this new medical school, obtaining the needed accreditation to move forward, and recruiting an incredible first class of medical students. This first phase of development was punctuated in July 2013 with a generous gift from Mr. and Mrs. William C. and Barbara D. Weldon, who committed $1 million to endow the directorship and establishment of the Institute for Rehabilitation Medicine. The Institute would afford interprofessional teams the opportunity to study and practice neuroscience, clinical radiology, and rehabilitation medicine. We were off to a great start. Please join us for the second podcast in this series that starts with the eagerly anticipated arrival of the first class of medical students in 2013. Thank you for listening to part one of QU Netter The First Decade, the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine 10th Anniversary Oral History Podcast Series. I would like to thank the people who made this podcast possible. Katie Lyons, our producer, Grace McGuire, our assistant producer, David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcasts. Podcasts.